The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. Create a beautiful website with Squarespace's all-in-one platform. Use code CANHE for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Welcome back to Can He Do That? A podcast where we explore the powers and limitations of the executive branch. So you might remember when Trump said, I have a no conflict of interest provision as president. It was many, many years old. This is for presidents because they don't want presidents getting, I I understand, they don't want presidents getting tangled up. That's from a news conference in January where then-president-elect Trump laid out his plans to disentangle some of his business conflicts. It turns out that even after that, there's still a lot of questions left. I'm your host, Allison Michaels, and to help us answer these questions, we've got the (laughs) award-winning, fresh off the award-winning David Farenthold here. You may remember him as the guy who released the famous Access Hollywood tapes, or hopefully you remember him even more for his rigorous work that he did covering Trump's charities throughout the election season. Dave, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here. So first of all, can you just fill us in on the work that you've done thus far and some of the things that you discovered during the campaign? Well, during the campaign, a lot of what I focused on was Trump's charitable giving or lack thereof. Trump had spent a lot of time over his life saying, I give this money to charity. I'm giving the profits from this venture to charity. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out if he had. And the answer generally was no. We couldn't find any proof that he'd been giving away these millions of dollars that he said he was giving away. And even more, we figured out that he had this charity, the Donald J. Trump Foundation, which sounded like it was his money. In fact, it was not his money. It was other people's money. And he was using it in ways that violated the law, or at least appeared to violate the law. He was using the money in his charity, which is supposed to go for charitable purposes, to do things like... uh, pay off his business's legal settlements or to buy large portraits of himself. Okay, so now that he is president, one thing you're tasked with covering are Trump's business conflicts of interest. So what have we seen change since he's taken office? I know a lot of people have cited the Nordstrom's incident. Are there other examples? I'm part of a team that's covering Trump's businesses, including the you know the marketing side, the, the hotel businesses, the condos, the golf courses. You hear anecdotal things, like there have been some big bookings of the Trump Hotel here in Washington, D.C. by foreign embassies. You know, the Kuwait's having their National Day celebration there this weekend. But that's the kind of thing that big hotels in D.C. get all the time. It's not necessarily proof that people are doing this to suck up the Trump. Around the, you know, the rest of the country, we don't really know enough to know if his products are doing well or well or poorly. The places where he has golf courses and where he has uh, hotels and condos in the U.S. are generally in places where he did not do that well as a presidential candidate. So you wonder whether there'll be people who will now turn against those places and not go to them. So all of this also comes into play when we consider the emoluments clause of the Constitution. A lot of us have heard this term quite a bit at this point. It's a reference to a provision in the Constitution about accepting foreign gifts or payment. Um, But to really help us understand the law, I turn to Fordham Law professor and political activist Zephyr Teachout. There's a provision of the Constitution that basically forbids federal officers from taking one of three things from foreign governments. You can't take presents, you can't take titles of nobility, and you cannot take emoluments. The logic of it's pretty clear. You don't want people who are in important positions, certainly not the president of the United States, but all federal officers, to be influenced either explicitly or just through the basic influence of getting gifts or payments in their decisions um, by foreign governments. So what, what's the origin of this law? Where did it come from? It, it was in the Articles of Confederation, so it was in our sort of early pre-constitutional document. And they got it from the Dutch, 
there was a provision in the 1651 Dutch Constitution that was basically the same. And what I think is really interesting is that in the 17th century, when this clause was brought into being, Amsterdam was really the center of global trade. And so when you think about the reasons for this clause, one, which is very relevant to our current situation, is that you don't want foreign governments influencing federal officers when it comes to trade policy. So anyway, it's borrowed from the Dutch. It's in the Articles of Confederation. It's actually not in the early drafts of the Constitution. But then in August of 1787, there was a discussion, a fear that uh, a foreign influence and the emoluments clause was put back in. I should be clear that there's, you know, the Constitution doesn't have a section in the back of it, which tells you how to name all these things. So it's not like <laughs> titled the Emoluments Clause, but it, uh, it has taken on that name over the last several decades as government lawyers have really worked incredibly hard to make sure that it isn't violated. What's so striking about the current violations is that this is a clause that hasn't been litigated very often, or, or really hasn't been litigated, not because it's so trivial, but because it's so central that federal officers have gone out of their way, and especially presidents have gone out of their way to not violate it. One thing that the Trump's lawyers have said is that, you know, what they're accepting from foreign governments are not gifts, that they're actually just business transactions for services that they're providing. And therefore, this this emoluments clause doesn't apply. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, that interpretation really doesn't make very much sense, because the clause forbids presence and then separately emoluments. So it, it separately prevents taking presents or gifts. You basically, the way the Trump lawyers seem to be reading this is they're saying that the emoluments clause prohibits taking gifts, comma, and gifts from foreign governments. That isn't a sensible way of, of reading it. But more importantly, there's two other things when you're interpreting a constitutional clause that you want to look at. One is, you know, what did the word mean at the time? How is emoluments used? And though emoluments is sometimes used outside of the context of business relations, it also was used in the context of business relations at the framing of the Constitution. Moreover, you want to look at the purpose of the clause. And it's very clear that the purpose here is foreign influence. And, and the, the framers of our Constitution were rightly very worried that foreign governments would spend a lot of energy trying to influence American policy. Now, some of that influence would be really obvious, um, like what we might now think of as bribery. Some of that influence might not be so explicit. It might not be, here, I'm going to give you this cash in exchange for this policy, but rather just being the beneficiary of, of a good business deal can make you think more fondly of the person with whom you're dealing. That's just basic human nature. And to read the, the clause in the context of that understanding of human nature, it's pretty clear that emoluments uh, encompasses um, uh, profits that come from business relationships. Can you speak to any specific examples with the current administration that you see that could potentially infringe upon the emoluments clause? Well, there, there's a few things. One, and I just want to say that one of the most important things to understand about the emoluments clause is that it is a anti-corruption clause, but it doesn't operate like modern federal bribery statutes. So we don't ask in any particular instance, was there influence? Did this change his mind? Did this change her mind? We simply ask, was the gift accepted? But I'll lay out four different kinds of violations of the Foreign Emoluments Clause that are ongoing right now that we know about. And I just uh, remind your listeners that we don't know all the details of all of these because Donald Trump has not released his tax returns. So the first of the four 
is the one you've probably heard the most about, which is when foreign diplomats stay at Trump hotels. Now, what Donald Trump has said, and so that's money that's eventually going into Donald Trump's pockets. What Donald Trump has said is, don't worry, it won't last long in my pockets. I will donate any profits that come from foreign diplomats staying at my hotels to the Treasury. There's a whole bunch of reasons this is problematic, but the basic reason is you don't get to violate the Constitution and then pay a penance for it. The second uh, uh, sort of source is the Trump Tower in New York City. So there's two foreign governments, the UAE and China, which have wholly owned government entities that are renting from the Trump Tower in New York City. The third source of foreign government payments is The Apprentice, Celebrity Apprentice, a new Celebrity Apprentice. The president still gets royalties, including international royalties. And in a few countries, those royalties are paid for by government-owned entities. The fourth area is the area that we need to know more about. Uh, but it's all the Trump developments in foreign countries that depend upon governmental action. So in Turkey and Saudi Arabia and India and China, just to name a few, you have major developments. And the value of those developments really depends on how the governments act in their permitting and other uh, regulatory processes. And any business person will tell you that a permit is worth a lot. A permit and the speed of the permit is worth a lot. So you have an opportunity for favorable treatment that can really make our president richer or poorer. So I just want to dwell on that basic point for a moment. We have a president who is, in multiple ways, for instance, entangled with the government of China in such a way that the government of China can choose to make him richer or poorer. At the same time, we are in the middle of thinking about what our, our trade and military relationship with China um, should be. So this is not only a constitutional violation, it's a very destabilizing constitutional violation. You guys have filed a lawsuit, from what I understand, you and a few other constitutional scholars. Can you tell me a little bit more about that suit and what's in it? Yeah. So actually, the lawsuit, I'm one of the lawyers on the suit, and the lawsuit is, it was brought by CRU, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, which is a nonpartisan watchdog group. And our suit asks for something very simple. Stop violating the Constitution. You know, I actually got interested in this clause a few years ago in 2009, not because I thought anybody was going to violate it, but because it actually represented a uniquely American approach towards anti-corruption. It sort of represents the anti-corruption spirit of our founding generation. And uh, so th that's the context in which I wrote about it. I got to tell you, I did not expect to see anybody violate at this level and certainly not a president. So I know that the president has said before that a president cannot have a conflict of interest by nature of being president. What's your response to that? I mean, that's nonsense. The Constitution applies to the president. Uh, the Emoluments Clause applies to the president. Federal bribery laws apply to the president. Um, there are a handful of laws that do not, but those handful of exceptions don't mean that general laws don't apply to him. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Create a beautiful website or online store using Squarespace's all-in-one platform and award-winning templates. No coding required. Make your next move with Squarespace. Use code CANHE for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. 
So let's get into some specifics here. So President Trump has basically given complete control of his businesses to his sons. And then in January at his news conference, he had this giant stack of papers that we all probably remember where he said, here is my evidence of handing the business over. I am now disentangled. What are the challenges of the setup that he's created? Well, the main one is that he has not really surrendered control. Uh, so he created a trust um, that is controlled day to day, he says, by his sons, Don Jr. and Eric, and a guy named Alan Weisselberg, who's a longtime Trump Organization staffer. But legally, the trust still benefits only Donald Trump, and legally, only Donald Trump has control of the trust. So he may choose not to exercise that control, but if he wanted to, he could fire Don and Eric. He could ask them for details about his businesses. That's one question, is how much control did he, you know, legally, how much control did he really give up? He had talked during the campaign about having a quote-unquote blind trust, which would mean a trust in which he exercised no control and had no visibility into what the what his assets were doing. And uh, that's definitely not what he's set up now. The other question is going to be what, in addition to what control he's exercising over his company, what is he doing as president to try that might benefit his company? Uh, because he certainly knows where all of its assets are. He knows what businesses it's in. He certainly could figure out what moves as president would benefit the company he left behind. Now, to the blind trust point, so he did set up a trust. It's just different from a blind trust, and it's different from divestiture, right? It's absolutely not divestiture. Divestiture would mean that he would sell all his assets, and that would be one way of getting into a blind trust. If he sold sold his condo buildings and his golf courses and everything that he knew about, took those assets, gave them to some sort of manager who would invest them in, you know, Play-Doh or crayons or whatever whatever other industry uh, he wanted to, and then not tell Trump about it. So truly, it would be blind. Trump wouldn't know as president what moves he could make that would benefit his own fortune. He is not anything like that. He's kept his businesses where they are, doing the things they are, doing the things that he set up. And he knows that he is the beneficiary of this trust. And when he's done being president, he can go back to reaping the reward. So there's some sort of new legal structures in place between him and the day-to-day legal control of his businesses. But certainly, ultimate control still rests with him. And he knows you know, where all of his business arrangements have been made. And theoretically, he can read about them in the news, right? right. So he'll, he'll have access to that information. That's right. So why hasn't he chosen to do this? Why hasn't he chosen to, to make a truly blind trust or truly divest? The rationale given by his lawyer was that uh, if he were to sell all his assets now or you know, post-election, pre-inauguration, that there would be sort of a fire sale mentality. Buyers would know that he had to get rid of them, so they'd pay low dollar for them. Or maybe you'd have buyers who wanted to sort of curry favor with President Trump, and they would pay way too much for the assets that were for sale. Now, that's their excuse. You'd think that if that was if they knew all along there were those disadvantages to that plan, they wouldn't have been promising all through the campaign that they would do it. Um, so they didn't do what they said they'd do, and I understand their reasoning, but they they certainly promised to do something different than they did. So have presidents in the past been this rich or had this many complicated business arrangements? Is this something we've seen before? Um, have they been able to make it work? Can you speak to that? So most presidents have come up through, you know, not that we haven't had wealthy presidents before, we certainly have, but most presidents have come up through years of public service. They don't, they don't come into office with sort of a big a business empire beneath them. Uh, there is an interesting parallel, which is Lyndon Mays Johnson. Uh, Johnson owned, uh, his family owned a series of radio stations and a very powerful TV station in Austin, which he had got basically through political clout when he was a congressman. And he had said, oh, so these are powerful tools to help him as president to spread his word and say nice things about LBJ in Texas. He had said that as president, he would put things in a blind trust. Later biographers found that he didn't do that at all, that he continued to exercise day-to-day control over that business through special phone lines set up in the White House that went around the government operators where he could call the guy running the quote-unquote <laughs> blind trust and tell him what to do. So what were the consequences of that? For him, nothing. I mean, he got richer. 
Have we seen evidence of foreign leaders or business partners really trying to meet Trump's business interests in order to curry favor with the United States government? No, we have not. I mean, we, it's still early on and that could happen, but we haven't seen really uh, any concrete examples of that other than foreign embassies booking uh, things at the Trump Hotel in D.C. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there something with his Indian business partners? Yes. Yeah, so overseas, there are uh, he, Trump has a number of hotel condo deals, plans, proposals in, in a number of other countries. And one of them, he talked to some business partners in India after he was elected. Uh, there's an Indonesian guy who was a big partner of his that had supposedly came to the inauguration and was uh, sort of faded. Those are people who are already in business with Trump. We haven't seen anybody sort of as far as I know, doing a new deal with his company or with his sons in an effort to influence him. That may happen. I, and certainly he's left avenues open for it to happen. So one thing that repeatedly came up right after he got elected, and I'm curious where it kind of stands now in terms of analysis, is are foreign leaders going to be more likely to stay at the Trump International Hotel in D.C.? Do they feel like they have to? Uh, have we seen that happening? Well, so far we have not. I mean, there have not been that many foreign leaders who've come to see Trump. I mean, one of them was Shinzo Abe, the president prime minister of Japan. As I recall, they stayed at uh, other places in D.C. Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> well, Abe stayed at Mar-a-Lago when he was down with Trump in Florida, but Trump said that he personally paid for that. Okay. So that was the emoluments clause sort of hanging over that interaction. We don't know for sure that he did, but that was Trump's line was that Abe and the government of Japan did not pay. And the, the Japanese staffers who came with Abe did not stay there. They stayed at the Holiday Inn or something in West Palm Beach. So he says he paid and he maybe, you know, we're assuming that he is telling the truth. How do we find out whether or not that's true? In that case, if it was a personal transaction between the president and his pers- his private club, it may be impossible to know. It's possible that we're going to see cases where the U.S. government will pay Trump's businesses. You know, the Secret Service supposedly is renting out space, as is the Pentagon, in Trump Tower so they can be ready to protect the president and also ready to launch a nuclear strike from Trump Tower if need be. Certainly a lot of uh, Trump's aides have come to Mar-a-Lago, have used Mar-a-Lago facilities. It's possible that we'll see what the government has been paying Trump uh, for the use of those facilities, but we don't really have those details yet. Are there things that we've seen from this administration that don't necessarily violate the emoluments clause or don't necessarily like blatantly break some sort of major rule, but really feel like conflicts of interest? Uh, Well, yes. I mean, the fact that he has gone back to Mar-a-Lago at great taxpayer expense. So Mar-a-Lago, for listeners who don't know, is an oceanfront club at Palm Beach. Palm Beach is a skinny little island off the coast of Florida. Mar-a-Lago basically has coastline on both sides of the island. It's an extremely hard place to defend if you're the Secret Service because it's got water on both sides. So it's cost a ton of money to protect him there. Melania Trump, the first lady, has stayed at Trump Tower, which also has had to be protected. Trump's sons, uh, Don and Eric have traveled around the world doing business deals at Secret Service expense. So, you know, the Trump family has certainly cost the U.S. government a large amount of money with voluntary choices, especially his choice to go back to Mar-a-Lago every weekend. That's a choice that costs taxpayer money. It also makes him money because he's bringing notoriety to, Palm, to, to Mar-a-Lago. He's bringing government you know, payments to Trump Tower. So those are things that, as far as I know, are not illegal, um, but they certainly raise questions about whether he is using taxpayer money wisely and whether he's using taxpayer money in a way that puts money in his own pocket sort of indirectly. Um, There's also been some interesting questions about his involvement uh, sort of in promoting his golf courses. I mean, there was a great story in Golf Magazine yesterday about uh, the the PGA. Do you read Golf Magazine a lot now? I do now. (laughs) I do know. I do read Golf Magazine now. So Trump owns a bunch of golf courses and he would love to have PGA Tour events at his golf courses, or at least he would have loved that when he was still running his business because they bring a lot of notoriety. You get to be the big, you know, king of the hill for a few days when all the PGA Tour comes to your your club. It also raises the club's profile, makes you a lot of money. 
Trump lost one of those PGA tournaments in 2015 because of his offensive comments about uh, Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants. And he would really love for the PGA to come back to one of his clubs. The other day, the, according to Golf Magazine, the president of the PGA is driving down the road with his kids and he gets a call on his cell phone out of the blue. Please hold for the president of the United States. And the, the, golf, the PGA tour head says, well, this was just a social call. But a random call from the president of the United States, whose businesses would very much like to have a PGA Tour event, is not just a random call. It's not just a social call. So if the if the president continues to use his time and his clout and his sort of influence in that kind of way to talk to people for whom there's really no interest in the taxpayer, him talking to the PGA Tour head, but there's a huge interest for his business, that's going to be the kind of thing that we're going to – people will start to raise questions about who he's helping and whose interest he's serving in office. So what can come from people raising questions? Because this is something that we've heard from listeners a lot. Basically, what can a private citizen do um, who has concerns about this? Can they do things like fund their own investigation? I know somebody suggested that to me. Or can they file a, a class action lawsuit or something like that? Well, they certainly welcome to fund whatever investigation they want. They can subscribe to The Washington Post, which would be <laughs> really nice. Um, but the question of can a citizen sort of enforce the, the – talking about the Emoluments Clause particularly – um, can citizens enforce the Emoluments Clause? I think the answer is no. The laws of the United States do not allow just any random person who is unhappy with the way government officials are acting to sue them in their capacity as a taxpayer. Otherwise, the legal system would get clogged up with a bunch of people unhappy and nothing would ever get done. It seems like in the language of the Constitution, the, the body that enforces the Emoluments Clause is Congress. If they think he's violating this, they're supposed to impeach him. Uh, and I have seen no movement from this Republican-controlled Congress to impeach Trump over that or anything else. Um, for folks who are concerned about this and want a remedy to it, probably the most obvious remedy is the ballot box. You know, if you if you think that Trump is guilty of a you know constitutional violation, ought to be impeached, then you know go out and work to elect people you think will impeach him. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect from the post if we're going to convince people to fund our investigations? <laughs> what kind of things are we looking at? Sure, uh, we're there's six of us, some really talented folks, uh, and me, uh, and we're trying to look at all the different things the Trump Organization is doing now, sort of how the business is being run by Don and Eric, uh, and also what uh, whether President Trump is serving his business business's interests or the interests of his business partners in the White House. So one of the weird things that I'm doing now, just as an, as an example of the kind of weirdness you find in this beat, is that the president is or his company is planning to open a cemetery in New Jersey, and they are actually. Two Two cemeteries. They've applied for permission to build a giant cemetery in Bedminster, New Jersey, where you, at least according to the sales pitch given to the town, could pay to be buried next to Donald Trump. And so that's the kind of thing that they're involved in. What? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so the question is whether Trump would really be buried there. But he's told the town of Bedminster, New Jersey, that he plans to be buried there. And then you, if you pass the right tests and you, you know pay your money, you can get buried near him. I have to tell you that my husband and I went on our very first date in Bedminster, New Jersey. Really? Full circle. Wow. Anyway, but there's you know there's a bunch of other things you know business dealings overseas, uh, hotel expansions here, a lot of his businesses are involved in sort of long running lawsuits in here and in Canada, all these sorts of things that are going to require decision making by Don and Eric and maybe have some sort of nexus with state or federal government while he's president. It's just going to be immensely complicated. Wow, good thing we have all those people working on it. That's right. Okay, well then, we are going to go ahead and bring this to a close and ask you the final question that we ask at the end of the show. Can he continue to not fully divest from these companies? Can he continue to operate the way that he has been operating? Essentially, can he do this? In a legal sense, I see no reason that he can't. Uh, I don't think we've run across any 
anything that says he's violating the law or anybody who, with authority who says he's violating the law in a moral political sense, I think it's going to catch up with him. I think it's going to become something that he that hangs over his head all the time uh, if he seems to be using his office to benefit himself and his businesses. So I don't know. There's a bunch of other stuff he's doing that may catch up with him politically. But I, in a moral sense, I, the question, the answer is, I don't know. In a legal sense, yes, he can do it. Talking about catching up with him politically, one thing is that his his voters, his base, don't really seem to mind these things. They seem to think that the media or you know his critics are on a witch hunt and that these are things that have kind of existed before or aren't really problematic. Um, have you seen that in your reporting? Have you come across that? I believe it. I haven't come across it, but I, I do believe it. I mean, that there's a there's a you know in any politician space there's a lot of people who you know but that's what makes them the basis. They're not going to turn away from them very easily. Uh, and I think that the key difference here is. Every president spends all their time hobnobbing with rich people, right? That's what that's what presidents do. They don't hang out with regular people. Uh, and the difference. So President Obama spent a lot of his time surrounded by, you know, when he went out socially, it was Hollywood celebrities, music stars, athletes. The difference here is that in Trump's case, people are paying him for the privilege of hanging out with him. And if it looks like he's using his clubs as a way to sell access to the president, uh, or if people are treating them as such. Uh, and and those with money get access to the president in a meaningful way when the American public does not. That's something that's going to be a big question. I mean, I think he's going to have to defend that, uh, and not just not to his base. The base, you know, forget about them. We're talking about the middle of the country that sort of swung this election against Hillary Clinton because they felt like she was too corrupt and bought off. Uh, if Trump gives people that impression, he could be trouble for him. Very interesting, Dave. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You guys can follow Dave Farenthold on Twitter at Farenthold, F-A-H-R-E-N-T-H-O-L-D. And you absolutely should. He has done some groundbreaking reporting on Twitter and is even famous for it. So you should check him out. You should also follow me on Twitter at Allison Mikes, where I keep you updated all week long about the updates we can't bring to you on this episode. So you can read it all there. And while you're following us on Twitter, you should also switch right over to the podcast app and give us a five-star review on iTunes. I know that you like this. You keep telling me. So you should leave a review on iTunes to let the world know. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next week. Can You Do That is a team effort here at The Post. Our amazing producer is Carol Alderman. She really rocks. We've also got our design director, Rachel Orr. We have additional reporting from Tanya Sachinsky. And our logo art is the work of Loren Boglio. Thanks, guys. You can find more podcasts from The Post at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. If you liked Can He Do That, you might like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan's interviews reveal the real people behind today's biggest news. Or try Sequiza, Chris Saliza's weekly quiz show of news, entertainment, and news entertainment. You can find Cape Up, Sequiza, and more Post podcasts at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.